Hello, welcome to Refactor in Blood. I'm your host, David Earl Duncan, and with me today... Hi, my name is Kaushik Shankar. Nice. There was no way I was going to get Shankar, right? Like, I was going to miss that real hard. Yeah. Um, and uh, Kaushik and I used to work together, uh, used to play chess together. Uh, I think he always beat me. Did we ever, did I ever win? No, I don't think you ever won. <laughs> yeah. Ouch. Uh, yeah, so uh, first, let's tell me a little bit about your, your background, how you got started in software development, where you work currently. Yeah, uh, so how far back do you want me to go? Um, let's do, let's say, post-high school. Uh, okay, so so quick recap then. Uh, in high school, I finished uh, a couple years of uh, CS, uh, learning Java. I experimented with some uh kind of pet projects uh, around like video games and like audio and then uh by that point i was kind of interested in math and cs already so uh college kind of came naturally so i went to uh uc irvine applied for cs uh, uh and yeah like i focused on cs all throughout school and kind of uh because of the AP classes that I'd taken in high school, I was able to kind of power through some of the courses at UCI and ended up finishing in three years. And then during that time, I had a little bit of extra time in the last year to do like a part-time job slash internship uh, at a startup down in SoCal called uh, Drumby. Are they still around? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> um, all, all, all the people I know, the CEO, the CTO, uh, have left for other companies. So when the CTO um, and the CEO leave the company, so I, yeah, I don't think I don't think it's still around. But, but was um, that a was that a good like was that a really like was that a good first experience? Because startups can be really uneven in terms of yeah. Uh, the the CTO was like an ex Microsofty and um, went. Uh, uh, kind of to build an like a, a kind of a, a new product off of a, a Node.js stack, um, and uh, the the product that the company was building was really cool. So I wanted to help out with that, um, which was uh, basically a better version of like the call tree that you deal with uh, on a on a phone call for for any big company. That's like oh you know if you're if you if you have these issues press one. If you have these issues press two. They're just kind of building off a, a modern version of that with uh, your phone. So like if you're a car insurance company, let's say, and you want to, you, you can you can kind of integrate uh, this app or like this library into your app and allow a customer who, let's say, is stuck on the freeway or like let's say their car breaks down, they call it, they use this app, right? They're like, uh, hey, I need some help, right? Um, that That app will get the geolocation, know your name and, uh, you know, first, last name, you know, your, all, your, all your kind of identifiers, and then track that as a part of the uh, request to you. So when you get the phone call, you already You're have already, all of that information. Right, because what drives people crazy is when you put in your information and it's like, okay, 
can I have your phone number? It's like, how do you not have that information? Like, I've already called yes. you. I have an account. Right. I actually provided this information to someone already before exactly. they transferred to you. Yeah. How has it happened that this information, which you presumably input, has been destroyed in the last 30 seconds? Right. Like, yeah. Like, I give it to one person, person A, and it's like, person B is like, I don't have, I don't have, it's like, what the hell? Yeah. Did person A not write it down? Or yep. where did this go? Yeah, it's yeah. even worse when you have to spell out your name. Yeah, um, which I have to do on a regular basis, yeah. and I'm pretty sure everyone that worked there like had to spell their names. So, it, it, and it was yeah, it was a it was a good idea, um, and I'm sure they still have the patents for it. <clears throat> but um, yeah, um, uh, I was part timing there uh, mainly because I still was, still was going to college, uh, and then while that was happening, I kind of got a con got contacted by a recruiter from Amazon, and and so. I couldn't, you know, resist getting an interview from Amazon. I, I wasn't actually looking for any jobs up in Seattle or, uh, you know, SF or anywhere really. I was because Drumby was local, and I was I wasn't really planning on moving out even. And where was um, Drumby at? Uh, it's in Irvine, California. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah, so I went I went and interviewed because. I got a free trip to Seattle, and <laughs> and the, the interviews were uh, pretty fun. Um, I enjoyed them; they were like challenging, and uh, and like luckily, I was I was actually taking a course uh, around the same time, uh, which was an um, I think it was a graduate level course for uh, algorithms. So like I had all of that, and it was like the finals were just that day. Yeah. Uh, so you had yeah. already been like, like the day before. You yeah. didn't have to open up cracking the coding interview because it was like yeah. you had been basically taking like you know a course on it for like months. Yeah, like I think it was just a couple of days before the interview, and I, and I flew the day after the final, and then I uh, did the interview, um, and then yeah, so it was all like in in my cash, you know, yeah. and. Uh, so that was great, and uh, so that was yeah, that was fun. Uh, the team I ended up joining the team like immediately after I graduated. Like graduated, I think like in June twenty, so June twenty twelve, but like June twenty second um, or something like that, twenty first or twenty second, I can't remember. But then I started July second, so I kind of moved up here like kind of the week after, and then just started. Yeah. Yeah, and you've been at Amazon ever since. Yeah, uh, <laughs> about six. Six, uh, six and three months or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you've you've been and then about how many different teams have you been on at Amazon or, or different projects? Can you even count them all or is it? Kind uh, of yeah, I can I can probably count them all. Uh, they're roughly like one per year, um, <laughs> basically. Um, but I'm sorry, one one project per year, but like one big project per year. But uh, the team kind of interesting count. Kind of depends on what you count as a team. So I've been in ads, uh, in Amazon advertising all my career. So, uh, but within Amazon advertising, th there's been a couple teams that I've been on. So for the first six months, I was kind of on this team that was focused on um, ad units, uh, which are basically <clears throat> the, uh, um, the content that you see on Amazon.com. Um, so, so it'll be like, uh, both logic about what uh, where the ad is shown, like you know, on, if you go to Amazon.com without your ad blocker, you'll see like, you know, right uh, on the right uh, column, you'll see like a, a 300 by 250 
uh, add. Sure. And then also down uh, further, further, further down if you scroll, right? And uh, those uh, slots, they're called, um, are basically meant for ads, but how we get the ads into that slot is entirely up to us. And we have like a couple of backend systems that we had to kind of manage scheduling and stuff like that. And I was all very new to this. And so I was just kind of like learning how the the JavaScript was injected and stuff like this for so the for the client side. For your first couple of years, were you working more in the back end or the front end or sort of learning JavaScript, I guess, as you went? Um first couple of years um it changed but for the first six months it was mainly front end um so i was so i made some changes to uh some of the client-side javascript that injects ads in, onto the page uh so um so that was like some of my initial like initial changes um and then uh i got moved on to a team so like within within uh the team that i was on um, there were like a couple of small sub teams. Um, so the, the, the sub team that I was initially on was responsible for injecting ads onto the Amazon page. Um, you know, whether server side or client side, we kind of used different versions of that based on, uh, latency and stuff like that. But, uh, after that team, I moved on to a different, I moved on to a different sub sub team, like a different sister team. And, uh, that team was more focused on the back end for, uh, creating the content that that shows up in those slots, so like the different ads, like the ad, uh, you know, like images and JavaScript and CSS for the actual ad sure. itself. Um, and so before that, we had just Flash ads, mm. and um, so you were you were there for like the the dying of the Flash era. Yeah, I didn't actually work on any Flash myself, but I did uh, see people get because like you know it was like the first six months, so um, but. In the first six months, I, I did see tickets come in for flash ads that other members of the team investigated. And um, yeah, what I guess, because one thing I want to talk about today that I think is like, interesting is how do you decide basically what new things you're going to learn or can you consciously plan it? And then also, I think just as importantly, how do you decide things that you're not going to learn, right? Because... The problem is that people go, yes, to be a good software developer and computer scientist, you should learn everything. You should learn type theory. You should learn you know, Lambda calculus. You should learn C. You should learn Lisp. You should learn assembly. You should learn Java, Python, Java, you know, like it, that may be true, but you know, humans have limited lifespans and also most developers do have other things in their lives beyond software development. Right. So, you basically, by choosing to learn one thing, you're choosing not to learn something else. Yeah, so. yeah. One thing I like about software development is that uh, it's it moves fast, right? And and if you compare software like development engineers with other kinds of engineers, right? Uh, you don't have the same speed uh, with uh, new technologies and new uh, developments in the problem space, right? right? It's not and like Boeing doesn't have to go through and go, geez, this this guy's still doing the plane stuff, like the, the fixed wing stuff from three years ago. We got to get rid of him, you know, right? Like it's, it's definitely. There's, there's definitely like, you know, uh, the, uh, let's, let's, we're almost certainly, uh, let's see, actually see. 
We're almost certainly picking up that uh, background noise of dogs barking. A tiny bit, but whatever. That's, I mean, we can... That's a really shrill, like, this is a unidirectional microphone. That's really shrill. Yeah, like, must be. Um, but, yeah, so, like, I mean, that's a benefit of it. But, for instance, like, in your, this is, like, a really good concrete example, I think, is how did you decide in your first six months that you weren't going to learn any Flash? Or did you learn some Flash? Did you get into ActionScript? So, I had actually done some action script in the past already um i made a flash game uh, a while ago uh, like back in my college days but uh yeah during during college I, I kind of experimented with different industries within cs i started with uh video game development i think um what else did i do uh i liked tutoring i've always liked tutoring so i, I went into that for a bit um thought i almost went into it as a career um, but then I realized that there, like, that has its own limitations, and I wanted to do more uh, than just teach. Right. Um, and but like, I I still like to teach. I still like to talk about the stuff that I that I understand and want to you know share. So, hmm. um, so I so I guess like flashes is a, is a bad is a bad example because you already had some some prior knowledge. I, I had a little bit of prior knowledge. Is but, there because I'm. What I'm what I'm always interested in is when you see something that feels either like legacy or on the way out or something, right? And you have to make that call of, is it worth my time to invest in this technology, or can I just wait for this to blow over? Yeah, no, I I think I think I think there's uh, varying degrees to this, right? Um, uh, I I think engineers, uh, like especially software engineers, right? We need to know, we do need to understand the tools we have available at, at a high level right like like what is uh what is a problem that the set of tools that basically humanity has can solve right and just at a very high level we need to have like we need to have broad knowledge of that right like like um the problem spaces that cs solves like like ml ai uh you know basic or like robotics you know like there's, there's like there's a lot of uh, variety in how CS is applied, but the tools that are used to solve those different applications are not nearly as broad. Right. Right. And so when when you think about uh, what tools are available, you 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 kind of just want to know like what are the categories of uh, so like problem spaces but and even then you can you can drill down into it further oh yeah like which i mean you, you can totally drill down into it for a whole lifetime yeah and, and, and uh like like for example operating systems right and, um, but that's where it gets like, interesting is if you're like i'm really into kernel development and they're like i don't i don't think away. any engineer should ever be <laughs> so uh like uh into one thing that they can't get into something else um, and, but the, the thing is like, you know, with, with hiring, you know, and, the, and with the, the variety of engineers that we have, right. We can always, we can always hire people that know specialties. Right. Um, so it's not about like knowing anything too specific. It's, it's, it's about being able to take a set of tools or like figuring out which set of tools will solve the problem at hand. Right. right. I think um, that's. That's sort of the the whole. I mean, what's another aspect of no silver bullets, right? Where it's right. like, you you don't say when someone's coming to the field or when they're coming from like you know even with like a CS degree or a code boot camp, 
they're like, okay, what is the thing? What should I learn now right. to get a job? And you can give people varying degrees of good or bad yeah. advice. Yeah, like th like a CS degree gives you like super topical knowledge of uh, you know like networks, uh, operating systems, databases, websites, you know, service architecture. Right? You know, they, these are like very high level concepts that you don't you don't necessarily actually. Uh, get to apply solving a problem until you get into a company that's trying to solve this problem and make money off of it, right? Um, and the like, if you get too ingrained in that, and, and, and you know, like everyone, everyone loves learning into uh, like le learning deeply about one thing, and that's that's great. But you should also be like, or at least for me, I, I try to keep myself general. Uh, because I, I want to be able to say, hey, there's this new problem. How do we solve it? And I can say, oh, you know what? We need uh, this kind of solves, this, this can be solved with kind of three stages of uh, an application, right? You have like uh, uh, some uh, online, uh, you know, database. Sure. Uh, you have some application involved in that, and you have like, like if if it's like let's say a you know like a web website right you have like a uh, it's kind of like there's like a acronym for this it's like I think it's like OLTB or something like that it's like an online transactional data or OTL I don't I, remember, I don't remember the exact acronym but um, and then there's like an offline version of it right where you can process and analyze and learn um, and you know you, you have like different variants of this on different systems but like. That's one set of tools, right? Right. Um, but then that's not that's not going to solve every uh, software system, right? Like, <clears throat> like if you if you for example work on Windows, right? Like at Microsoft, like um, then <clears throat> then most of the thing most of the things that you're thinking about are, are running on the same CPU, running with the same memory. Uh, they're just like inter process communication most of the time. And the way that you think about services is like way different, um, right. and 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 you you think a lot more about uh, like the the problem space and the tool set are very different. Um, sure. And so you need to like like I wouldn't count myself as someone that can't wouldn't want wouldn't work on in that area. Like I I wouldn't want to say I can't work on that. Sure, but at the same time, there's like almost a um, a, a preservation of value if somebody says okay we have this thing in like Pascal and we really want you to learn Pascal and this whole service is going to go away soon because it's written in Pascal. Right. <laughs> but we really want you to master it deeply and then we're going to throw this in the garbage forever. It's like, yeah. how, how no, do you Yeah, that, that trade-off is, is, uh, is evaluatable. It, it at, is. Uh, right, because like you have time that you need to spend and you look at well, it's going to take me, let's say, a week to to really understand Pascal. Um, let's say that's um, and that that investment will require me to work on uh, or to actually solve the problem. Uh, or, sorry, what I mean is like if if you if invest one week in me to learn Pascal, but then use that investment for just two days of work. And then never use it again. That's a bad investment, right? And it's the cost of mm, 
I guess there's two costs. There's one is the cost of context switching, which is almost immediate, sure. which is where it's like I have two tasks sure. in two very different contexts that they need to be performed in. And then the other one is long-term, like almost like career value where we say, okay, like let's say you say, okay, we have a legacy Angular 1 app. Mm-hmm. You know, how valuable is it to be able to understand all of the Angular 1 errors? And it's right. like, well, it's almost worthless. Like it's it's valuable specifically for this project, but that's even something you maybe wouldn't want to put on your resume unless the company was specifically asking about it because right. it would almost like signal that you're you've been doing things that are you know ob- like obsolete or right. unused right like yeah, yeah. So like it's kind of like calling it like if i called myself an oracle certified something um yeah, th- then like work at oracle, that's, that's kind bad. of that's kind of uh yeah it's kind of like s- scoping limiting <laughs> me yeah I, I shouldn't say um, bad but it, it it definitely is defining you in a certain way right and it can almost be like a signal for something. I think there's something really interesting. I mean, it happened at Amazon, but also I'm sure it happens at every large enough company where someone comes in fresh out of school, either you know, code school or computer science degree, and they immediately start working on these like really legacy systems. Mm-hmm. And so their their context for professional software development is that like you need to use the Wayback Machine to get the documentation for some of these things. And it, and it's like, is, you know, you say, okay, well, you're well compensated and you are learning. And even within something very specific, you're still learning lots of generalizable skills. It's not like you're not. Yeah, as long as you try to focus on what are things that I can use uh, later or, you know, that I can apply later from what I'm learning now. But you have to be, vigilant about extracting that general general generalizing where sometimes incentives don't necessarily align because you as a developer like okay there's some like internal library that does things in this weird way and has this weird api it has these odd errors and it has these very specific requirements and if i go when am i ever going to use this again the answer is like never definitely definitively never but at the same time, you well, still need to do your you, job. Well, even 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 if it's never right, you you need to understand some aspect of it, right, in order to get the task done. Right, right? and, that's and what you when you when job. you when you yeah when you when you are doing that, when you are understanding that aspect, you tr- you should try to. Or what I try to do is I try to uh, extrapolate some pattern, right that. The code base or the service or um, you know whatever application it is uh, follows right and and see if that pattern applies in different circumstances or if there's a better pattern that should have been applied uh, to this problem right because um, like I think I think a big big aspect of generalizing uh, to learn how to solve problems general in general is is patterns right like it's kind of uh like software like pattern recognition is like such a core part of a lot of engineering and but this and, is where i always i i see the two sides of the coin and like what i always see is also in the same way you would need to identify what you should learn and to what level of granularity and what you shouldn't or should spend less effort on you should also be good at identifying anti-patterns sure right? and so yeah it's almost 
I mean, anti anti pattern is just a fancy term for patterns that are that are bad. Yeah, but <laughs> like, but like it's but, but they're bad. all patterns, right? Like they're all right. like um yeah. So I I agree. Like it, it's it's like but that's important to know that to 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 oh, see something and and be able to find the core pieces that build some uh, kind of. Uh, mental model of what the software is doing in uh, as a pattern and then kind of analyzing that pattern to see if it fits the job right uh, and that like that's something that we, we should be doing constantly whenever we're working because this, this is um, something that is I think very tricky is is whenever we talk about even like clean code or good or bad patterns or like how fit for purpose code is mm -hmm. uh, one thing that we we don't really take in, or one thing that's harder to take into account that I think it's interesting how many discussions happen without even considering this is like okay but how are we anticipating the requirements of this project changing over time sure because you can do something where at each individual stage if these were the final and only acceptance criteria and if this was all that was going to be done with it it is the correct decision but in aggregate it looks like this series of costly mistakes because right. there was some kind of mis miscommunication or like inability to predict what the project actually needed long term, sure. or even what was going to happen with it long term. Right. right. And so it's almost like someone's talking about they're talking about it as if it's a painting, as if it's like sure. as if you have a sketch and you're going to do the painting and you know more or less where everything is, and there's a few details that may change. When in fact it's like, you know, it's a movie. Or it's a TV series, you know, it's like right. they may order, they may go, yeah, that's great. Now we're going to have a second season where right. all these components need to be called a different API. Right. And it's like, oh, no. Right. We, 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 uh, you know. To that that was the twist. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like that's the twist. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, here's the twist. It's, it's, you're getting a second season. Right. And in the same way that like, like, I do think of code almost like works of art in the same way with works of art. Some like shows or even, you know, any, anytime somebody goes, okay, let's make a sequel to this. Let's make another one. Sometimes you see an immediate and precipitous decline in quality Yeah. because either the amount of time it took to make the first one, it just took a long time to make. And then they said, okay, great. Now that you've done it, you know, let's stamp it out. Or because they go, okay, but you told us this was all you wanted. And so we built the system with these constraints in mind. And now you're asking us to like remove yeah. essentially foundational pillars you know it's like this is a load-bearing pattern and you're asking us to fundamentally change it yeah i think i think people sometimes uh forget how easy it is to to misapply a pattern um and so when when you when you take one like take a pattern and use it for solving one use case or like one season in this metaphor mm -hmm. um you they're, they're like often people just try to reuse that pattern for another season or another or, uh, or problem. Another whole project, like um, right. not, not to delve too much into cultural criticism. We may cut this later, but it was like you can tell that Westworld is a show that's very similar to Alias. Um, but in Alias, it's like where the CIA with this rope, and and so it's like okay, we can't quit. We're all these black ops people, you know, like mm -hmm. we're we're in it for life. But then in Westworld, it's like you're just this corporation. And so they don't, they're not black. They don't have a real way to have the same mechanism of why everyone's, why it's so internal. So they're like, everyone's just really irrationally afraid of losing their job. Hmm. And they're just like, oh, I can't lose my job. I, I, you know, my dental benefits. And it's right. like, really? The robots are like killing these people. Like, 
I would just quit. Mm-hmm. Like I would just quit and work for Facebook or Google or Uber, you know, like, and that's, that's, and okay. There are people who are like horrified. They're like, no, that's what makes Westworld so great. Keep, I'm not going to keep watching. Mm-hmm. But like, and that's, what's funny is they take this pattern that worked or within this certain context and then they go, let's just do the same pattern again, but they're really shoehorning it in there. Right. So they may go like, oh yeah, we, we built this little domain specific language for widgets and it works really well for simple widgets. Right. And then they go, okay, but now we want to hook these up to other widgets, make more complex widgets. And it's like, yeah. oh, now having everything as the internal state doesn't work anymore, for yeah. example. But, uh, so to, uh, to a similar extent, this uh, appears in other types of engineering too. Right, uh, like architecture. Right, sure. um, uh, you know, buildings are built and maintained uh, similar to software. There's obviously there are some weird differences, and you can't really change the foundations of a building, where you can't, whereas you can with software, right? Um, where you can, like, the metaphor doesn't apply very well, but in certain situations it does, um, and like you can you can templatize a building. But the first time you make a building for, uh, for one customer doesn't mean that same same type needs to be applied for a different customer. Um, and uh, uh, but what, what I like to think is uh, a better approach is to look at, is is to build small pieces right that work on its own that solve small problems. Like for example. Uh, if you look at uh, some of the more recent buildings here in Seattle, right, like the uh, Day One building uh, and the Doppler building that are uh, mm-hmm. Amazon buildings, uh, they look similar, but they have uh, different uh, criteria, and they do reuse some uh, patented technologies, right? Um, so, for example, the windows uh, that are like integrated into the full building like right. that you can open up that you like can open, right yeah. which is a, it's a pretty unique feature which is mm-hmm. that you have a, it's kind of odd to see is you're like you go into a meeting on the 25th floor and you're like, just strong breeze like, yes yeah. it's like i've never experienced this before yeah but it, it's yeah it, it's a cool i mean it's, it's a good design point and it's, yeah it's, it's interesting to integrate yeah and and that's something that they can use across buildings uh in seattle right or, and any anywhere really like wherever hq2 is going to be right like i'm i'd be i'd be interested to see if they apply that same same right. technical and, but like the, scope or like the same one thing for that building and, like that's a great example of like a, a little reusable technology right um but let's you know let's say and again this is pure speculation well, let's say it's in like, you know, it's in Arlington, it's in DC, but now to like sort of continue to extend this metaphor, um, you know, Washington DC was built on a swamp. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it has very different um, geological requirements and the, the soil is very different than it is in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So one downside of like a templatized approach, if they said, oh yeah, we need a Doppler in a day one, you know, in this other, and if they go, great, we'll just do the exact same plans. We'll ignore you know, we'll do, we'll either ignore it completely or we'll do very cursory research. But basically, I think the temptation of like the templatizing is what you say is you say, okay, well, we're really good at doing this thing. Or like we have a lot of experience doing this thing. So to reduce variance and unknowns, let's, let's take this thing we already know how to do and apply it to new conditions, but with 
minimal modifications. Or, or there should be some testing, right? Like, for example, right. if, if these windows, right, are applied to some building, let's say, in Florida, right? Right. Um, do we know that these windows work against, like, hurricanes? Like, uh, sure. Like, does this, like, do those, you know, um, they, they have, uh, like, uh, wings, basically, uh, like, that are vertical uh, along the sides of the building mm -hmm. that kind of uh, stop a lot of the breeze right so you break up some of the so that you can yeah. actually open the window without being like without it being too strong right? yeah and you know like is that something that works against hurricanes like is that something that'll be okay for hurricanes who knows right like was it tested like we, we'd want it like you, you'd want to know that before you incorporate it into a building when you when you just build it you yeah. you would but even even in architecture i think like the what is it the i would say the millennium tower in san francisco is like falling apart because like it's it's okay. like there's cracks in the windows there's problems in the foundation oh and it's like it was this very large architectural project but like even in building architecture it's like apparently they didn't do it's like one of two things happened either they and i think these really apply very strongly to software either they didn't do enough research up front mm -hmm. and they sort of picked the wrong pattern or they made inappropriate substitutions like that's what i see happen very often is that you ask a question we go okay, we're doing it this way. Who decided that we're, we should do it this way? And what you go through is you find out that there actually maybe even was never a decision, right? It's just someone said, okay, we can't, there's this way that's known to be good and we're, we can't do it that way for some reason. We're doing some variant of it. And so we're doing this other thing and we're just sort of assuming that there won't be any cost or risk or problem with this because it seems really similar and we're, we're not trying to change the way we do things. It's like, it's right. like just a substitute good where you just, right. it would be like, if you go, yeah, I mean, we're replacing this thing that was made of steel with plastic. And it's like, okay, well, who decided that plastic would be the same as steel for this? Yeah, there's a classic example of uh, one of the buildings, oh, man, where is this? Uh, uh, where uh, they, they fundamentally changed one of the um, pillars uh, of this building to, to uh, hold, I think it was like the the third and fourth floors. Mm -hmm. The way that they uh, joined against the pillar was um, like that. The schematic for that was changed such that the 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 weight of the third floor kind of added on to the weight of the fourth instead of just adding it on to the pillar. And so the screws that were used for the fourth floor that were originally meant to only hold the fourth floors. Uh, weight uh no longer supported it right do you remember do you know what i'm talking I about i don't know um, the specifics but this is this is like you know yeah there, there are a lot of things missing from the software as construction metaphor but th these are some of like the things that are not missing these are things yeah. that are so unbelievably like these are striking parallels like, yes I, I had a conversation once with a building contractor and it was amazing how much I understood of their field where they're like, yeah, we have these like delays because this happened and then like this other team wasn't ready with their part. Yep. And then the customer changed this requirement and it's like, it's, you almost wonder if maybe even we're too limited in that actually any large scale endeavor, any, any large scale engineering endeavor has a number of common features of like, yeah. and, and among those, one of the most dangerous is the assumption that a change that has not been fully investigated and researched will be fine. Like in other words, yeah. defaulting to the assumption that it's safe 
rather than defaulting to the assumption that you have to prove that it's not unsafe. True. So there's one there's one caveat, right? Software development is way faster and we can change things internally without impacting customers, right? You can change the screws, you can change the right. the components that build a floor uh, after the fact. That's, that's right. The you big can difference. you can uh, change the foundation after the fact and not know. You, you, you can, can even build an entirely separate tower. Separate. You can yeah. leave the tower that is poorly built completely in place. And then build a replacement tower right. and then slowly swap out pieces of it, which is like just something you can't build. Right. It would be like with Seattle's traffic. If you could build a second Seattle, do traffic simulations on it, mm -hmm. and then do a replace in place, you just like turn on the new Seattle one day and have completely right. different roads, completely different highways, completely different traffic patterns. Right. Or, so, or or send half the people to the other one and test yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So have beta tested. Have 10% of people randomly live in the new Seattle. Yeah. Um, right. But what's interesting about software is because it's so malleable, as a developer, whenever you see like a real legacy system, you're, mm, my initial response is still to be kind of pissed off that it's still like horribly broken or unsafe or yeah. messed up. And as I've gotten more experience, I try to become more understanding of what were the what was the original understanding of the system, and also what were the business priorities that caused the system to never be replaced. Right. And then also, are these business priorities correct or incorrect? And it, because sometimes you look and it's like, yeah, it's a legacy system, but it's making billions of dollars a year, and you know the cost to maintain it is a rounding error compared to profitability right. and the risk profile is pretty well known. So it just means that, well, there's going to be a shit ton of tickets and a lot of people are going to get paged a lot, but that that is business wise, the correct trade off. Mm -hmm. um, but then in other cases you, you look and you go, Oh, well, actually uh, my, my, my point there. Uh, so there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Sure. So, so um, yeah, because software is so malleable, um, the initial development, right? Like you said, um, the initial development uh, needs to get something out the door, mm -hmm. right? Then you see where the things are that are broken uh, without obvious mistakes, right? You There will be things that are broken, like um, there will be uh, unforeseen constraints that come up later, right? Um, and like these are kind of assumptions you have to make, right? Like like the word, the, the, the context that something is being run in, the... Like if it's a soft, if it's, if it's an app, right. If it's an iOS app, there's going to be some, uh, APIs that are no longer available or AP, new APIs that you should be using, or you need to upgrade, you need to, you know, like, let's say there's a new phone coming out, you know, then you got to, sure. uh, upgrade the size and all of this, right. Like these are all like unforeseen or, uh, you, you have to kind of expect these kind of, uh, maintenance, uh, uh, level changes, right? Or like, you can categorize all these kinds of changes under maintenance, right? Yeah. And, I mean, and the, the question is, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. And, and the, the the question is like, how much of this should be kind of, uh, you know, should be seen when you're building the initial version, and how much of it is something that you can say we'll take care of it later? Um, and I think when you're thinking of when when you are building an app, right? That trade-off has to uh, lean on the side of let's do it later, but keep it open so that we can change it easily. 
Right. To, I think that's the key thing is not to, you know, you're never going to get it 100% right the first time. And even if right. you do, the world will change around you right. so that what was once 100% right is no longer correct. Right. But, right. So that, I think that's the distinction is, is not to try to get it perfectly the first time, but also to not create a sort of fake version of the system. Like, I would say almost like, you know, one thing that can be good or bad depending on your business needs is demo-driven development. If your business is contingent upon the demo being accepted and liked, mm -hmm. then you should do demo-driven development, right? If you say, we're not going to do demo-driven development, and it's like, okay, well, your whole project is canceled because the demo sucked. Mm -hmm. And it's like, all right, so we have to meet in the middle somewhere, mm -hmm. but also you don't want to go the other way of so aggressively and unrealistically representing what you can do that the demo looks great, but that actually you aren't even sure that the engineering problems that you are pretending to solve are even solvable. Right. So, so you have to balance. It. Yeah. One thing, one thing that, that I've used is just drawing lines and naming things. Right. Um, and like, so the, the technical name for this is like separation of concerns. Sure. But uh, really it's just like, here's one thing this should be a separate thing from some other thing, right? And uh, so like in the building metaphor, um, like the you should be able to swap the foundation without having to worry about the rest of the building having to change. But, but that's the interesting thing is that the, there is a, um, I, I used to think it was, it was sheer like malice or like laziness, but now I can almost see the argument where you can say, let's make it so that we can swap it without affecting other parts. But then it's a surprisingly popular thing to say, even among engineers, they say, well, do we have, is there a business requirement to swap the foundation right now? Mm -hmm. And you go, well, no, there's not because PMs, you know, even if they're a TPM, they maybe don't necessarily have full context on this and they don't even know what the product is meant for. Mm -hmm. And so somebody can say, okay, well, we get to do it brittle because no one told us to make, no, no one told us to make it good extensible or or I shouldn't say good no one told us to make a robust system um, and at the same time though as an engineer you should say right but that's kind of like no one told you to make uh, an earthquake proof building but if you know how to you should yeah so there are different ways of defining the separation right um, uh, and yeah, it really depends on you know what kind of software is being built. Like if right. it's if it's a JavaScript app, right? A function, a, a dependency, or like a like a like an like a module dependency, uh, could be sufficient, right? As long as you say um, there's some module that solves this problem, I'm going to use it for my function, right? Like that's kind of like the whole point of a function is to solve one problem well. Right, and, um, I think and if 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 you have a definition of that problem, then swapping the implementation for the solution should be easy. So then why do we, why, why are monolithic solutions so tempting to developers? Because I mean, even, even in the JavaScript community, which has kind of like a bad reputation for like, why are there hundreds of, of modules and who knows what they're doing? And you know, the good, mm -hmm. the good answer is like, okay, I have hundreds of modules, but all of them are trivial to replace. So, right. whereas if you have a monolithic system and you have a problem with it, 
you, your entire business, or you may be at the mercy of, you know, whatever the roadmap is of some third party, because you've basically, you've given them everything. You know, if you're like in the .NET ecosystem, you're not going to be like forking its core and doing your own thing. Like well, you're, you're, the problem is like languages are a little bit trickier, right? Uh, like you can't really swap languages so easy. Right. Um, so that's, that's a fundamental decision. Yeah. Um, but if you say, if you're working in a polygot code base where you're, or, or, you know, polygot product where you, you have handoffs at different points, then what's kind of interesting is you can say, okay, we wrote this thing and let's say you really want to do something with concurrency, right? And, and like, you know, uh, Go code routines are great. Right. And so you write this thing in Go and it's like 200 lines and it's great. Now, the good news is that if later you look at this and you go, okay, there's some problems with Go or there's some, or there's some, some issue here or we actually we, this just doesn't play nice with the JVM the way that we need it to, then you can replace it. But now if you've written a million lines of Go, no, it's, that's a difficult, it's too late, yeah. right? No, it's, it's over. Like it's, you're, you're committing to essentially burning it down and starting over if you want to switch. So there are a couple of strategies you can go with. Uh, <laughs> Uh, with uh, uh, re replacing large systems, right? Uh, one is wrapping it in an interface that uh, w w you know wherever the context. If it's a if it's a go coprocess, let's say, uh, running on the same host uh, mm -hmm. as some other service, um, some other process, uh, then you might you might have like an intermediary process that kind of uh, is meant to be kind of the interface to which your first service will call into the Go code process. Mm -hmm. But then um, that process can start, you know, uh, A-B testing, right? You can, then you can have like two processes running, one, one that takes 1% of the traffic or something like that, and then uh, kind of test out like small parts of the change, right? Maybe not all uh, parts of the API are, in, are implemented by that second step, but the first step is, right? There's the first code process has everything implemented so you can say if uh, if the request coming in into this kind of uh, delegator uh, is supported by the second process instead of the first process the go the go code process mm -hmm. then then you you pass it along to the second right you can yeah. do, you can do things like that where you um, you wrap something ugly in something uh, simple right, like, you, like you a facade a nice API layer um, yeah. that, that even allows you to treat it as almost as just like a black box where you right. say okay I'm going to pass things into it and then it's right. on the other end yeah. and then I can tell you how much time has elapsed between right. me passing in and me getting out the output right. and I don't need to have granular knowledge I can just say hey is is this faster or is this, or is that faster? Right, and 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 you can you can and then and then by having it this way, then you can granularly sh shift uh, things from the first to the second as as you build things. Right, you can say you can tell your uh, and this is also a business decision uh, mm -hmm. where you you say hey, um, uh, doing it with uh, this you know process B uh, is better than with process A, which is currently written in Go. Um, because of you know benefits X Y Z, right? And then you say um, if that's a worthwhile trade-off, right? We we can commit to anytime we need to improve or iterate on a feature that's in process A, you just migrate it to process B, and then 
um, you know, deprecate right. eventually. And, but that's, but so what's interesting is, is this is something that I think, I think very few engineers would be like, no, that sucks. Don't do that. Let's, let's build a huge monolith with lots of assumptions and like, and, you know, like implicit coupling. Like, I don't think anyone would argue for that, but very often in the wild, you find these systems and, you know, as satisfying as an explanation is to be like, well, some people just suck, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, that's true of anything, but that's not like a adequate explanation to say everybody sucks, but me is not a good, it's not engineering. No, I, I think it's just a difference in like timelines, right? Like right. architecture has the same issue, right? Except it happens along the lines of multiple centuries, not multiple years. Right. So when, when like, I think of software as like, in in a state of constant deprecation right uh like everything is going to be deprecated eventually and it's just a question of uh like what problems does it solve well what issues does this thing have and what is the next thing that will solve those issues while also maintaining the problem or solving the problem and yeah and then that's and just knowing that when you uh, and like this is the same thing with architecture right like you have buildings that go up you have it being in use for you know maybe maybe a couple centuries right like good buildings right and then and then if they uh and you you have exceptions to this of course right you have like the cathedrals and stuff like that that are so iconic that they they are maintained i think that's that's the key of like you know there's like the cathedral and the and the the bazaar and like and, and that was really referring more to not just architecture but even like a model of thought and the purpose of a cathedral is to be a centralized structure that remains unchanged forever and is defined centrally and has certain like known attributes. Right. And as much as everyone goes, no, no, the open source, like the bazaar is much better. But then you look at something like, say like, you know, Unix, mm-hmm. right. And you're like, well, that's pretty close to our cathedral. Like the fact that I can go to the, like the living computer museum and that I can use almost all of the same commands and they still work. Like that is, you know, like that is something that has not changed. And so it's like, it's good that these Unix tools work well and are composable because I can grab an LS, you know, I'll be doing that 10 years. From so, now. So, so, so the abstraction there is a little bit like, like, like the metaphor doesn't really apply to Unix there. Right. Cause we're well, talking, I, I, cause I, Unix is like an OS, but right? yeah, but some, it's, some, but, it's not an application. Sure. No, but sometimes you want, it's an ecosystem, but right. Even, it's like a, like in this metaphor, it would be like, a county right. or well, a state or a country. But even let's take like something like where buildings card, are running on credit card or, transactions or like things that are still being done on COBOL right. or something. And it's easy to criticize that, but it seems like their acceptance criteria and the way they defined their project was correct, which was this is going to be in use for a very long time. Right? Like they didn't say, yeah, we'll probably do this well, and then we'll not- probably rewrite we'll probably rewrite credit card processing every three years, right? Like, no, yeah, but you'll, you'll, I'm sure it's going to get replaced in the next century. Oh, for sure. But that's, but that's the tricky thing is, is, um, you know, it's like when you think about like aiming, sometimes you see a project and you, you just see this like race to the finish line and it's like, put in the hacks, doesn't matter if it's not sustainable long-term, we just have to get to the end of this because it needs to work and work fairly well. Yeah, it's but just once it's done, we're never touching it again. Is that, that's not true. Like, it, so the business driver, right, changes over time, right? right? Like the priority for swapping 
from COBOL to some other language might, might not have a big business value, but maybe 10 years, 20 years from now, right? If, there will be a way a bigger uh, value in it. Um, but I would say the difference though is like, right? if you are writing, you know, if you're doing code review for code for say credit card processing, mm -hmm. you're saying, okay, we really need this to be very high quality. Whereas if you're say making a promotional mobile app that like likely within the next three OS versions is going to break or be broken. And that's okay because it's like you're making like, let's say you're making a promotional app for like a movie. Sure. Then it's like, well, after that movie comes out, uh, right. you're not going to get a lot of new downloads. Right. And that I think is, is it becomes kind of funny. Yeah, it's like a tent. It's like a, sh it's like it's super exactly. makes, makeshift, right? It's, it's short term. It's, it's, it's or like even like those big box stores where, right. and I think, you know, Walmart, is sometimes criticized for like okay, they come in, they build this big box store, and then they drive to local businesses, and then if they decide it's no longer viable, they leave town. But that was already inscribed in the strategy from the beginning because all the, a lot of these big box stores, the building itself was not really meant to last more than twenty or thirty years. Hmm. So the idea they they weren't saying this is the shining future and we're going to be here forever. It's like if you talk to the architect, the architect would go, oh yeah, you're going to have a lot of pro like. This building, I would expect this building to be torn down 50 years from now because mm -hmm. it's it's not meant to last. Sure, yeah. But then the problem is when your plan changes, you now, for instance, like a cathedral, you have some cathedrals and stuff like where they've undergone hostile occupations, invasions. It was right. like people who wanted to destroy the building couldn't figure out how to do it. Right. Versus, say, like a modern apartment building where it's like, it's an active structure. Without maintenance in 100 years, it will be either pretty unsafe to go inside of or it will be a ruin. Uh, I don't know about that. Like, uh, like some of it will still be usable, right? Like, it, it's like architecturally, like the foundation, the frame, the, the framework, right? Like piece, Pieces uh, of it will be. But right. let's say there's... so this is like, like, I mean, like air conditioning won't work or something like that, here's right? Here's a classic but, example where it's like, okay, let's say that, you know... Everybody's gone for some reason. Neutron bomb goes off, and then one day, mm -hmm. uh, a pipe, a pipe which like you know somebody left the faucet on, and it's like that's all it would take to destroy a thirty-story building would be if there was if there was a source of water mm -hmm. flooding from the top, you know, getting into the foundation. It's like the Grand Canyon was formed by a river, you know. So it's like, but that would that was like millions of years, right? <laughs> but those millions of years, but also. Um, an apartment building is significantly more porous than solid stone. So, you know, it, it would be interesting to see what would, hmm. what would happen. Like, I mean, the same way you see like, like spaces. Well, there in there are holes in the building that, that leak out of the building. Right. Like, as in, it's right. not, it's not going to go. Oh yeah. It like, it's not like the Titanic. It's not going to fill up and, right. and fall over. Right. But in the same way that like water damage can do, uh, can make it, you're right. Like the like the steel frame may exist, but it would no longer be fit for purpose to live in because mm -hmm. you don't have floors anymore. You know, it's like you, maybe you, yeah. the elevators don't work. You know, if the stairs fall through, if you know, if the floors above collapse and the stairs are blocked by rubble right. and the elevators don't work, it's right. like yeah, okay. There's theoretically a structure up there, but I, I think I think with code, you sometimes look at really old code and like you pull it down and it doesn't even run anymore, and it's like. Okay, but why, you know, it wasn't meant, it wasn't meant to last five years, you know, right, it was right. meant to, it was like, this was an iPhone app for the iPhone 3. Right. 
and it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it's just it depends on the problem space, right? Like uh, like Microsoft, for example, right? Yeah. They manage they manage files or like file versions of like Excel and like Microsoft Word that have existed if, since you know oh, early nineties, right, and stuff I like mean, that. The eighties, so, like I've I, I built a little like Excel parser thing, and like you look at the headers and you realize there's some crazy stuff in there. There's like there's like an is 1904 flag or like 1912 flag. And it's like, what is like, that? Because there's some, I think I want to say it was 1904, but it was somewhere in that range where it's, there was some bug where if you are uh, representing that date, because Excel actually supports date, like date objects kind of like date. Mm -hmm. So if you are, if, so it tells, it tells um, the parser that if you have this like early 1900s date mm -hmm. that you need to handle some math slightly differently. I don't know if it's related to like leap years or some other like bug in the soccer, but it's like the way, like the way they solved it was with a flag. Mm -hmm. um, and there's another famous, maybe, it's, maybe it's it. even like unit types or like uh, integer types. Or yeah. Like it's, mm -hmm. but it's like, that's the degree of legacy yeah. support where if you say did this from scratch, you would have this as a cautionary tale. And you, I think there's a, there's a, maybe you told me this, but like, I think with the uh, windows XP, there's like a beloved game like Roller Coaster Tycoon, and there's a special flag in Windows XP that allows Roller Coaster ty ty Tycoon to be backwards compatible. Hmm. And it's like because people really love that game, and it's like really, really popular, really widespread, and so they wanted to show off or even create perhaps a um, unrealistic expectation of backwards compatibility. And so it was like there's somewhere in the system there's a is Roller Coaster Tycoon flag, mm -hmm. like to and. I think I, I can appreciate that because some people go, this is a horrible mess. This is nonsense. But at the same time, backwards compatibility is king. Like if you are not backwards compatibility, compatible, you are making value judgments on behalf of your users. You are right. telling your users, this is no longer viable business. Right. But you don't actually know that. Like when, right. you know, when, when you deprecate something right. that someone's built their business on, right. they're saying you have to change. And that person may be saying, Actually, my business is really profitable. Right. And this technology meets my needs. Right. So you're you're making you're forcing me to make the incorrect economic decision based on like almost a moral judgment mm -hmm. of like this is wrong that you're using something this old. Yeah, I mean, and more importantly, like or like more uh, equally importantly, I guess uh, is that Microsoft has a bunch of customers like that. Right. Like if it's one or two, right? Like they could even dedicate a developer or two to just help them upgrade or whatever. But or, if it's like... Or even just keep it going. I mean, I think yeah. when Microsoft announced the end of support for Windows XP, I some of their customers went for it and said, actually, we'll pay you to keep supporting it. Right. And so they do. And so somewhere out there, someone's job at Microsoft is to make sure, is to like make sure that... Uh, consumer applications for Windows XP are working. Or and, and like bugs. CVEs are yeah, yeah. applied. Yeah. Yeah. Like the bugs. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like bugs are, are getting fixed. They're not secure, which is like remarkable, but also I think very few companies have it in their DNA. I think Amazon is similar to Microsoft in that sense. It really depends on the product. Right? It, it does. But like, yeah, like I don't know how much Windows phones are still support. You know, I don't know how much active support Windows phones are still getting. No, yeah. They, but what's interesting is some companies will say we have enough, we have customers, and they want this. 
but we're not happy with our return on investment or right. long-term growth of it. Right. And so we're killing it. Yeah. Whereas other companies will say, as long as we have customers willing to pay for this thing, we will tell engineers to shut up and keep working on the legacy system. No, it really depends. Like Amazon's Fire Phone, um, for yeah. example, uh, like we another good example, uh, right? yeah, like and and like well, like Google's like kind of on, on the other end is like, but yeah. there's, it's, I think it's a full spectrum. There's like Google deprecates things that people use all the time, right? And, and but in part, uh, I think that's because they have a very engineering centric culture. And engineers love deprecating old crap, or mm -hmm. or even, or, or, and it's not just engineers; it's also like you know, project and product managers. Yeah, uh, but it kind of depends, right? Like, so it, uh, as a user, so like recently, news came out, like maybe a couple months ago or something, that Inbox is being deprecated, Google yeah. Inbox. Not a lot of people used it. Some people did. I did. Um, uh, and you know, that kind of simplified my email management workflow like drastically. Um, and you know, they've been incorporating some of the features into Gmail on its own, um, and then kind of, uh, trying to deprecate inbox. Um, and like from a developer's perspective, I can see why that might simplify things. They just have one iOS app for mail that they can, uh, you know, upgrade and maintain, uh, uh you know, more leanly than they would, uh, uh, if they had two separate apps sure. for, for the same set of APIs probably. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it's like, it, but also and if it's like for a customer, right. That means that I'm, I'm going to have to, uh, I have to delete my inbox app. I have to like on my phone, I have to reinstall my Gmail app and then kind of go through and learn the new settings and stuff for how, how, how Gmail, uh, does the same work. Also, you can, you can guess that the Gmail code base is significantly older than the inbox code base. Because the inbox was the I don't was, know was the newer product, right? It like, was, um, so but they, it also they was uh, greenfielded a little bit. They definitely did, um, but it, it does depend. Um, so, uh, like on where you're running it, right? Like, so I think Gmail's web client is probably uh, like on. I think they they've had multiple iterations of it, and uh, uh, they probably have deprecated things they didn't want to deal with. Um, but uh, as you said, like. If, like, it really depends on the, on the, the context, right? Like, it, it, with iOS, right? Like, their Gmail app for iOS came out way after Gmail initially was out. And, so, and also, so, that's, that's an active structure. Like, if you somehow got a copy of, like, you know, like, the binary or whatever, like, if you got a copy of, like, the initial, like, package mm -hmm. for the iOS, the original iOS Gmail, it would not run on your phone. Sure. It, it couldn't, so it's, like, in a way, you're... You're you're forced to create. Now maybe maybe they just some tweaks and upgrades, you know, just a little upgrades over time, mm -hmm. or maybe they but they, they, they have they have CX improvements over time too. Yeah, and like let's say you know with the new iPhone 10s Max, uh, you have a bigger screen size, you have more screen real estate, you know, and so you you can put more content on the screen, and you can have like a menu system on this left uh when, when it's like yeah, in or, landscape or, or something. over time just like really simple things where it's like oh the resolutions are higher like those old assets aren't going to work anymore that's right which is like what has kind of led the svg revolution is that it's like right. oh you want it to be larger yeah we can just make it like what size you want it to be and they're like uh like do you want it to run on a 80 inch tv do you want it to run on a jumbotron do you want it to run, like <laughs> a lot of phone like right. it nothing you know it's 
that's you know that's a technology that has slowly been embraced even by people who don't understand it right. because they realize how much time is lost wrangling these discussions and how much how much it costs to make everything match a specific device yeah to say okay this is gonna be this is for 380 pixels wide and this is for 380 pixels wide and this is for 380 pixels retina this you know like these these things um, cost a lot and that but that becomes like an engineering advocacy position like it wasn't um it wasn't like a stakeholder who said hey have you heard of vector graphics you know like like yeah. sca- have you heard of scalable vector graphics like that was not the first person to push that i would guess um it was some maybe it was like a technical project manager or something but that was something where so an engineering side, you know. Yeah, it was probably like, oh, hey, uh, we could add it. We can add this new size. It would take uh, an additional two dev weeks. But if you, if we do this investment, then any new size can be supported after three, like after three, yeah. or something like that, right? And, but and and, what's and but, well, it, de- it depends on the team, right? Like some teams would say, no, we need that two week implementation now, and we'll do the three week implementation or, later. Or even just uh, in some cases, if you're using a very if you're using a system that's you know extremely legacy or, or has a lot of like hard coded assumptions, mm-hmm. you know SVGs have some unique properties to them, and it may be like, okay, well, right now we are taking image files, and the whole thing is assuming image files. The whole thing is built on image files, right? And the appearance won't be right, and and so we're going to stick with our existing system of like having eighteen versions of the asset, and then mm-hmm. like fixing up at runtime because. We because the cost of doing it more correctly is too great, or or or, 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 the, or the developer might say, "I'm going to write it in SVG and then write something that goes from SVG to assets." Yeah, they may do something weird like they take the SVG and they convert it to a PNG and then they upload that and they go check out our new SVG system. Right. You know, isn't this great? The UX designers can contribute SVG, which we then convert to a less useful format. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that, but, I mean, and. But sometimes that can be done not maliciously. It can be someone who says, "Well, if it's like a le- if it's a legacy system, yeah, then that's the right like the only, yeah, that's the, the only way you way. can that's the only way you can maintain new standards." But while then, how, but then as an engineer, you're not only like rationally going like, "Okay, well, we only do this," like you know, we only do this because there's the best business case, developer case. I think sometimes developers also are, are pushed by. Uh, either a desire to try something new that seems like it would solve some existing problems, or in other cases, they're pushed by a desire not to try something. You know, they're pushed by a desire to they just don't want to learn anything new, or they're just they're just not, or they're they're either skeptical of the value add, or they're fearful of the unknown cost. Yeah, or just lazy, or just lazy, right? Yeah. Like, and then how do you? This is, uh, we've talked about this many times before, is this can be really hard to assume good faith. Um, is because if you, if you look at this and you say, gee, this system's really brutal, it, it, it seems like it's you know, not really matching our needs now. And then you go back and look at it originally and go, wait a minute, this system never met your needs. Like, like mm-hmm. the initial implementation of the system was a miss from the perspective of the initial acceptance criteria. Mm-hmm. But it was sort of, concealed or, or and not even maliciously concealed just like sometimes there's really aggressive deadlines and there is no reward for if you're on like a you know a like a high level goal that has a lot of attention on it 
um, that's going to be basically given a ton of focus from a very high level for a very short period of time. Right. Right. Like in other words, like every single day, you know, a VP is getting status updates mm -hmm. for this like aggressive three month deadline. Right. But a week after it launches, no one cares about a major bug. Mm -hmm. And so it's like you, you, as you know, you know, you obviously want to do your best as an engineer, but all of the project incentives are not aligning towards, you know, being concerned about it after the certain point. It's all concerned about, you know, hit these three points that are visible to everyone. And then this sort of like iceberg of concerns on the surface. Well, tough luck, future maintainers, you know, bad news. Like you got, mm -hmm. you got sold a lemon. Well, I think, I think it depends on the VP. Um, sure. and it depends on, uh, your, you know, org tree. And let me be specific. Um, I'm not talking about any specific experience right. I've had. Yeah. Like it's, it's, this is, I've, sure, this no, can no, happen I will, totally inadvertently. Yeah. And sometimes the business case board is right. No, we've seen it happen for sure. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it really depends on, uh, the perspective of the VP and the, uh, questions that they ask about, uh, um, you know, what's like, what the actual, like, uh, product, like, solves and and are those needs met and like what because like if it's not like an iceberg and i think see the problem is if you think of it like an iceberg if you just well, kind of just want if you just want to let's like say see the pretty there's the ui thing on there's the demo that right someone that a high level executive right. who's non-technical can see right and then there's the underlying implementation. Right. And uh, instead of thinking of it that way if the vp or uh you know any any uh kind of uh, director of this um, focused on the core of this iceberg, right? Like, like what is the core problem this is solving? And is this, is that set of requirements met, right? Regardless of what the UI looks like, right? Right. Um, but then how do they... Well, they ask questions, right? That, that, that kind of uh, clarify how each maybe subsection or subset of the core is solved. And, and right. And, and right. that's, that's a great way for someone you don't, I think there's a like, you have like, let, let's say we have, uh, uh, like an iOS app, right. Mm -hmm. Um, that's like uh Foursquare, right. Or Yelp, right. Sure. Um, you can look at the UI and you can be like, Oh, this is a cool UI, right. As a VP, or you can ask questions like, um, as a user, can I do X, Y, Z? And, and, and also, like, like, like what, how does the data sync, you know, what is our, right. what are our estimates for our ability to like handle like massive scaling up? Sure. You know, do we have anything built in for like, you know, like abuse? How do we prevent, you know, like bots and spoof account? Like, right. so yeah. and you don't, and it, it almost is like, you don't have to be technical to do that. You, you have to be diligent to do that because I think there's a temptation of oh, yeah. engineers where... You have to be aware of the core problem right. and, and really focus on how how that problem can grow and what are the different aspects of the problem. But, but what's interesting is that sometimes the and, engineers implementing it, they see it as like purely a, like a deep technical challenge that someone non-technical can't... can't can't conceptualize or get to the heart of 
And then, but then you end up in this weird situation where someone non-technical at a higher level actually has a better understanding of the problem space than the person who has been working on the low-level implementation every day for months or years. Yeah, I mean that that can happen. Like it's yeah, it's like it's like ideally, like the the product manager, right? understands these problems also right? right like like the and this is something that a, like a like a product manager would want to communicate to the development team like hey um like if we're launching let's say um a qr code like mm -hmm. kind of um like a special qr code thing right like we would want to know like where where it's applied like what the cx is all the constraints with like url lengths and all of this right like all those things are somewhat technical but also directly related to the product right um or uh, you know there's like there's a lot of things like that where i uh i see product managers kind of um sometimes forgetting that technical details impact product design right. um and and have a huge impact on like the the growth of the product and and I think it's a role of an engineer to communicate that early on. To, to um, ask about and, what their vision is. Like basically, yeah. not just, okay, what do you want based on this mock yeah. or based on these three bullet points, but right. what is your vision for this? What are your expectations for this? Even what do you, ex what do you expect to remain the same in the future? Mm -hmm. And what do you expect to potentially change dramatically? Right. You know, what is your what is your sort of like level of certainty or uncertainty? And I think sometimes people well, are... that that actually asks the question of like what is the core problem you're trying to solve, and what right. are the things that are external to that, right? But I think sometimes people get uh, or stakeholders become concerned because they're afraid to give an answer because they're like, I don't want to be pinned down to this, and I'm wrong. And it's like, no, no, it's. I'm not asking you to tell me an absolute do or die. You know, I'm not asking you to see the future. I'm asking, what is your sense of this in this moment? What is you, what is your prediction for this right now? Mm -hmm. And then let's write down your understanding of it right now. So that if that changes in the future, we have an easy way to say, okay, this is what we wrote it for six months ago. Right. And this is how our, instead of seeing it as either you got it right or you got it wrong. It just, that's, think, that's the data that we had to right. the, make the decisions that we made. And you want to understand yeah. how your own concept of something has changed over time. Right. And if you document that, I think there's a concern where it says, oh, I'll look bad because I was wrong. Wrong. Or, but, but you were right at the time. Like right. that was, that's like, that's, that's the best you can do at any and, point. And no one's going to come after you if, now what, where people will come after you, and I think this is maybe what people are like thinking, like don't leave a paper trail, is that if you were wrong at the time, if you were, mm. if you were staring your acceptance criteria in the face and you were actively working in the wrong direction, even what was known at the time. Right. And then even nine months later, somebody comes in and they say, here's what it was then, here's what it was now, but you made a mistake back then. Like, right. it's not like... Well, wouldn't you want to know that so that you uh, you don't make that same mistake again? You would unless they go, well, what was the mistake? And like, well, the mistake was that person, right? Like, <laughs> no. The person, the I don't think any company does that. I don't, I don't think anyone does it explicitly, but I think that you do have that happen sometimes where... Only if that person doesn't learn, right? Right. Will it become inherent to that person that that problem exists? But, but there's, a, there's a duality there, which but, is like... But we have to assume that people learn and grow. But, either, but there's two ways to go about it. There's essentially two strategies, and you can only pursue one of them. 
One is to cover up the mistake and or, or to or to create doubt about if it is a mistake, basically to create enough sort of to muddy the waters enough that mm-hmm. you can't really say what's, you know, it's like, well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, who knows? And then kind of wait until you either get promoted up or move on a different project. Mm-hmm. And then the other is to go, hey, I screwed up, but it's not only me, right? And to go, okay, so what was systemic about this? Like mm-hmm. perhaps the real screw up was that this project was greenlit further up with such vague acceptance criteria right. that we weren't, that it was, you know, it was almost inevitable that we were going to miss. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like the whole like learning and growth and making a mistake thing, it's like, obviously the best thing to do long-term if you're thinking systemically is to admit your mistake, learn from it. And then also to point out, okay, what are the pro like, how can we improve right. our decision-making process? Yeah. But on an individual level, people can have very strong incentives to not do that and to kind of wait until they can get enough distance from their mistake mm-hmm. that they are basically are able to wash their hands of it. Um, mm. And I don't think, and it's not an either or, I don't think some people. But I think, I think it's a, I think it's a, like, it's better, like it's better for a company and org overall to be focused on making these uh, kind of, uh, retrospectives or uh, sure. there's another word for it for I think it's post-mortems. like postmortems yes that yeah. um, um, uh, you know like call out the mistakes and because oh, like it's fine to make a mistake once as long as you do a postmortem and you and you you kind of uh, plan improvements for any systemic problems then it's fine like yeah and in fact you want that culture of no, you, of yeah, you planning after mistake. yeah after postmortem. This is where it almost becomes like um, like uh, I think what they said about Watergate and uh, Richard Nixon is like the crime is the cover up. I mean, or it's like or you know like the or the problem. Or I guess mm-hmm. I mean I guess they're both crimes, but it's like the the problem is not that this thing happened, but that all of this energy was devoted into denying that it happened, covering yeah. up that it happened, mm-hmm. attacking people who were identifying the problem. Right. Say like something like. Theranos, you know, like they're, they're like oh, yeah. the most high profile like disaster of late. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that if they'd come out and said like, okay, like we want to use like this pinprick technology, but actually we're using this older technology, um, but we're like our biotech research play and we're building these partnerships and we have these other little doodads and widgets. And if they had said, oh, we thought we had a breakthrough. And then if they had walked it back, if they said, actually, you know, we're not happy with our results of this, so we're going to walk it back and use the old, you know, the existing systems, um, just so you know that even if you're doing our blood test, but, you know, then that would have been, like, a sign of integrity, right? They would be cool and say, wow, so they, they said they thought they had something, they had to admit that they didn't have it, and so, the, so that's different, right? Like, this is, like, PR, right? Like, right. which is but different from, like, internal communication postmortems. So you think, and I don't mean this, like, as a, a but, like, I think that there, unfortunately, even in internal communications, there is an element of PR. There is a, a certain amount of spin, like in mm. terms of how a project is is presented. Um, like I've noticed that sure. many projects, which I would consider to be um, either only partially achieving their goals or having been like radically descoped in terms of like like. Sure. When you when you see the announcement, when you see the launch announcement, that 
there's not a it's purely celebratory like there's not right. there's not and like you, you don't want to i mean you do want to celebrate people's hard work and even mm-hmm. if something is descoped even if there are problems along the way people worked hard on it and it does meet some business use case mm-hmm. presumably but at the same time it's very hard to do a post-mortem on something where it's like okay well the first thing we all agree on is that this is a big success and it's great and it's like okay well what if we dig deeper and in the post-mortem we find out that it's not and it's like well then that would mean you know that would be bad for a lot of people um who were involved in that or who were like chained to that and i i think like the job of management so politics uh, there's a couple issues with that right you so either there were bad decisions made uh like as in uh decisions that were bad at the time right um or uh there were good decisions made but uh things changed over time sure if it's the latter i think it's fine to call it out as uh, a, a partial failure or whatever right um because um like you want everyone to learn about uh what happened and like why things uh changed and what you can do yeah, better and, and how to how to get how to get process improvements out of this right um but if it's the former yeah right if it's someone made a bad decision and or, we're trying to or or, or not, let's not even say someone let's say that there is a because it's it's almost never one person mm-hmm. like it's almost always there is a series of suboptimal processes mm-hmm. that make you know less good decisions or less informed decisions more likely right because mm-hmm. anytime you say one person is gonna make the decision and they're totally sovereign and no one can impeach it or ask for evidence or clarify sure it's like that's already a that's, broken yeah structure. that's already a problem so yeah. it's like the real problem is almost not the bad decision but that for whatever reason that we don't have enough checks in place yeah Yeah. exactly like the checks and balances that were supposed to mitigate the cost of this or fix it before it goes too far Mm -hmm. um are not working and so but then when it comes to uh process improvements there's see so what i was what i was going to get to was if it's that if that's the case it should be called out Mm-hmm. Even then, right? That uh, like this decision was made. It doesn't, you don't have to talk about one person, right? right? And you can say, um, "Here is how we're going to make sure that those kinds of decisions won't get made again," right? Right. Because um, decision making for an org, right, is is uh, filtered through multiple people before it's agreed upon, right? Um, well, technical decisions can uh, well, can but, have but, people that but uh, there's any you know any structure which is completely top down is basically broken for any tra- like anything that involves like significant complexity or an unknown space so like in most structures you know most like effective structures and companies there's an interchange of information the top says mm-hmm. i want this and this one like adds clarifications conditions all of this or they push, you know, it's a push and a pull. Mm-hmm. It's not just do it the way that I said. Right. And and I think that's different with sort of like, I guess like, you know, any, I think of software as like a more creative work. Yeah. Because the space is never 100% known. 
and the there's also like 10 different ways to do everything right so how you reach that decision is is kind of a mixture of like you know the top ass or something goes through layers yeah i think i think technical uh decision making is very different from product decision making um because product decision making uh impacts cx right Mm -hmm. um and uh, and as long as the requirements of CX are defined, right, then the technical decisions can be kind of, uh, you know, can be held to some quality bar, right? But, but um, there's, there's um, I, yeah, I would agree with that. But like, I, especially for like the reality is like the majority of, of software development, in, in, at least in enterprise, mm-hmm. and also really increasingly in startups, is essentially some kind of like line of business app. Where it's like it, 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 you know, your or you know, line of business like service or system, where it's like this is, it's not. There's there's space for innovation, but essentially it's like we need to store you know this amount of records. We need to be able to retrieve them at this speed. We need to have backups. We need to be globally available. We need to be you know like the the problem space is fairly well known, and so you're innovating within a known space. And that's where, like... Well, you mean that you're, you're talking about the technical problems. Well, well, but I think these are related to each other because that's where, like, product people can shine, I think, because they don't... It's it's more or less safe for them not to have to know the technical... De- like, not to know the technical details. Sure. But if you're doing something that's very, very, you know, like, that's very innovative or very new or, like, depends very heavily on a certain... Sure. Like, let's say you're making a new VR game. Right. Like, that, like you need to know the technical constraints. But, like, as a product developer. Yeah. Uh, or product manager. manager or whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, you, but, you can't say, like, oh, I want, it to, I want it to have realistic walking, and I want no one to ever get sick. Right. And I want it to. I guess. I guess there it's called a game designer. But yeah. Um, well, I it, mean, like it depends on the company. Yeah. Like, um, uh, and you know, EA has product managers who essentially okay. oversee games. Because uh. like make it like last year's football, but prettier. You know, like <laughs> like there's no game designer for gonna. You know, like for, like they maybe someone designs features, but they're like the problem space is known. It should be like yeah, the they game. might have like different mechanics and stuff. Sure. There. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, it's like it should be like football, whereas this one's like, okay, are we making uh, a crafting MMO? Is it a single player like? Is right. it a single player adventure? Yep. Is it a, a a local multiplayer platformer? And it's like, right. and then if you or if you say like, oh, I want it to be a living, breathing world, and it's like, okay, well, many many eleven year olds have had this idea, and. You run into all kinds of constraints. You're like, wow, it should be a completely simulated, living, breathing world filled with millions of people you can talk to and you can do anything and you can go anywhere. And mm-hmm. it's like, all right, that's the the either the either it's not justifiable business wise or the technology just isn't there, <laughs> right? Like you and you know, like um, I don't know, were you did you follow along with like endless space? Um, no, I'm not familiar with that. It's, so it's a game where they just like it's endless procedurally generated worlds. Okay. But the problem is that it's endless procedurally generated worlds. There's not like people to talk to. There's not quests. There's not you know like oh. people were thinking like wow it's a game that I can play forever. Mm. And it's like well the the game space is infinite, but the the core gameplay loop itself is pretty repetitive. Oh. And like people. I, and for some reason, they were sort of expecting like the procedural generation to be magic, 
and to or or to to include like quests. Yeah, yeah, to include things that we have never procedurally generated in a, in a very satisfying or complex way before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good game, and people liked it. And now there's adding more content. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, like yeah, we, we should be wrapping up pretty soon. Actually, we're um, pretty close to the hour and a half mark. Oh, okay. I was gonna ask uh, if I could get, go for like a restroom oh, break. Oh, uh, yeah. Let's let's wrap up in the next minute. Uh, okay. Uh, and we'll hopefully cut out this restroom break talk. <laughs> or leave it in there. You know what? Editing is for other people. That's fine. Uh, it's like uh, measure once, cut twice. That's what I always say. Hmm. But yeah. So okay. So one thing I wanted to, one last thing I want to kind of touch on because we've had like a far ranging conversation, is in terms of like the way you actually interact as an engineer one thing and this maybe is a larger question but we'll, we'll time box it to like two minutes uh-huh. um is as an engineer you're supposed to be part of this feedback process of sort of back and forth and getting to the core of the issue and communicating up to stakeholders and, and making sure that your implementation matches their you know their understanding of the problem but uh what happens when you no longer believe in the product and you start thinking oh the core problem space we can't solve it with this or even just this is a stupid product or this isn't, this isn't something that is going to meet its goals. And there's not a way for me to like, how, how can you do your duty as an engineer in that case? Cause I like some people so, just move off, but I, I think there's a better way to, to handle yeah, so, that. So, so by default, my, my uh, state is uh, any, anytime we make decisions, I kind of consider alternatives and present like multiple you know options and discuss like trade-offs and you know like advantages disadvantages here's why we think we should here's why i think we should do this one um you know these other options are slower or uh, more expensive or tough to manage you know um uh stuff like that um and uh yeah so like so so when we have a technical problem right we uh we can solve it that way right we can say here here are the options um like the manager is kind of responsible for what for deciding product, what if what if you as an engineer think it's a product problem you, you just like suppress that so, thought no no I, I i talk to the product manager about it i'm asking you know i'm i'm asking product managers i'm asking their managers i'm asking uh like i ask you know who 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 do you talk to that kind of represents the customer Right, and the product manager says, "Hey, uh, this person," and then like I, I can like you know message them or email them or you know ask them about some use case and see see you know is that is this something that you guys actually do like um, and you know we and and like designers kind of do that too with like user studies and mm-hmm. and sometimes they they kind of represent customers and you, so you you can talk to designers that way too, right? Um, and because they're also kind of or their their role is to be intimate with the 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 mind of right, the user about you know the i guess like the happy path of like the customer flow and right how not just the requirements but how customers actually use this app and right how they and how a non-technical consumer of this app mm-hmm. who is surprised to ask that you know like doesn't necessarily expect their like they don't have a like, deep opinion of the problem space. They're just like, I'm using it for X and right. it's good or it's not good. Well, so like the back button, for example, right? Right. Like uh, we argue sometimes about, um, you know, hey, like the back button won't work if we go through this, uh, if we do it this way, right? But like, um, 
the designer like the designer's like oh that's so fine that's fine but then i i'm I'm arguing hey like that's that's probably not fine right um uh but it is a limitation in that um like i don't know what customers do normally right like it's it's an it's a limitation in my from my perspective right like i have to know that my perspective isn't a global perspective it's right it's it's that um as an engineer, I, I use the back button all the time. I use like, you know, I look at the titles of, of pages sometimes and sometimes I don't. Yeah. Um, we and expect query strings to be there, like, how, yeah, do, I, like, how like, do I link to this exact right, column? I look, like, yeah, I look, you want these things. Yeah, I, I, I do that. But that doesn't mean the general user does. And, and that doesn't mean that the CX should be catered to developers. If, unless, of course, that's like the actual CX, right? Like, right. Or like that's actual users. Like if, if you're like some API documentation page, you better, yeah, you, you better, you, you, you better have, develop, you should yeah. have hot links to specific, you know, like, yeah, uh, exactly. Like endpoints. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think that's overall really important to say as an engineer, you don't, oh, you don't take advantage of the fact that as the actual implementer, you actually have a power that no one else has, which is that you actually are doing the thing. Right. And so they're only telling you how they want it done. And, but I think that, that that's like an ethical response as an engineer. Like it's it's an ethical, like kind of like it's part of our trade is to bring up, yeah. not, not to impose your will or to go through the side door, but to bring up your concerns and to defend your position. And, but then also to accept that you can be overruled. Okay. So there's a, there's a, there's a little bit of a, like, I don't want to uh, overlap this with ethics um, because with, with, with ethical concerns, it's different from just, uh, kind of perspective. Or so I shouldn't say. Let me not say ethics. Let me say diligence. Yes. I kind of see in almost like a Protestant work ethic. I'm yeah. almost like being diligent is the same thing as being ethical. But you're right; they're very different. So we'll yeah. say, like, if there's like a security issue or something like that, that's right. that's that I know about that I've tried to bubble up, right? That we're yeah. not working on or something. No, that, like that's that's a very different uh, approach I would take. And and that's where the ethics comes in. Where I think it's like if you know you're like wow this could lead millions of people to data and you can't get the sprint points for it it's like right. i would hope that an engineer would say you know what maybe i'm gonna have to sacrifice a weekend to this right. maybe like maybe that's going to be the cost here or maybe if they just won't let me work on it the scope is too large i may have to leave this because i say i i'm i don't feel comfortable here right yeah, i, I mean, don't like, i can't condone this yeah or, or worst case uh you know uh, uh whistleblow Right. Yeah. Like, and say, hey, this is unsafe. You know, get, yeah. you know, and consequence from what, what may. So I think, but that's that, so that there is, you're right. So diligence and ethics overlap, but I think you're, you're right that they're not the same thing. Yes. So diligence is, is like you do you know, when you're, when you, when you trust your uh, teammates, right? Your product manager, your, like your, you know, entry level engineers and your, your managers, like you, you can, you can trust them to do their diligence. But when, when it comes to ethics, right, like you have to take it, like it, it depends on your ethics, right? Right. Um, and so if, if, if you argue with your product manager saying, hey, there's this security issue that we need to fix now, and then, and then, and your SDM as well, and, and let's say they, um, they deprioritize it for some other thing, right? Uh, yeah, like that, that's, a, that's a different fine pre-launch but if they're going we'll fix it six months after launch you right. have to say this cannot happen right this is not allowed yeah yeah, yeah. i mean and and 
for for the most part you you want to escalate there in before you do anything like whistleblowing sure because, of course because and it, if if you can't if, if every time you escalate you're getting the same response you can you can either you know do a do a uh, like a ethics check with someone some other engineer and you, you yeah. or like a mentor right and you you ask like hey this is what i'm dealing with right now and you say um am i am i in the wrong here cuz like you know maybe maybe your ethics are off maybe maybe yeah it, uh, i mean i've had uh, that experience where i was like it is unethical to not write this into local storage because we're deleting people's hard work and it's like well it's a shitty ux experience but it's not like you know, evil. It's just you know suboptimal. Right. Like, yeah. It, it, it depends on um, like uh, what your ethics are, how important you <laughs> think that is, um, and uh, how in tune with reality you are. But, but I mean, what what I found, I mean, certainly within um, at least from my own experience with Amazon, and also with with working as a consultant with clients, mm-hmm. is that security is treated very very seriously like there have been enough serious breaches there have been enough issues that like mm-hmm. a, a a functioning sophisticated tech company is going to jump on that and if you escalate you are not going to get in trouble the right. people who try to cover up the problem or de-emphasize it right they might get in trouble right you will so definitely if you're in that situation totally yeah you're, any, you're, any you're healthy all, functioning yeah. company will 100% back you up Correct. once they're made aware of it right you know whatever level and, yeah and if they i mean otherwise it's going to be like the like the the way of equifax which unfortunately isn't that great because like they haven't really taken a huge da- hit for it but um but like you know like if if you as an engineer bubble up the fact that there's like there's like serious issues and yeah. people cover it up and you whistle blow or you uh, you, you know, you leak but, or you... Uh, I mean, um, I mean, I think like whistleblowing and leaking is you're really doing two things. Well, I mean, if it's like, if it's a security, you know, if it's like security thing or it's betraying, you know, like customer trust, consumer trust, or it's just simply doing something illegal, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're just like getting around like GDPR or something, you know, it's like sure. you're breaking the law. Like, right. And I think that you're whistleblowing on two things. One, you're whistleblowing on the behavior, but I think more importantly, you're whistleblowing on a dysfunctional culture. Correct. And so in a functional company, you don't, you don't have to go outside of it. You just have to find the right person inside who is as concerned about this as you are. Right. And they will, you know, no matter how many layers are between you, they will absolutely help you with it. So it's like, yeah, if, if you bubble up, right. Uh, or you go, you escalate, yeah. right. You like, if you're getting to like an SVP and yeah. and they're they're trying to cover it up, right? That means that you that company is like uh, toxic, right? And, and you like you are in the right to leak that. And you, you can literally like save the email as a PDF, and then <laughs> and then you're you have like enough records. And I mean, to, I, and I think like right. healthy companies like and most. I think really, and I can't speak for all of them, but like mm-hmm. my experience with people I know at the major tech companies, there's really not a fear of leaks of that nature because the internal culture is healthy enough that it may take a while and it may it may take a little longer than is optimal. Right. But you know, they're they're going to do the right thing because they understand that long term yeah. it's actually the best for their business. That you know, yeah. I think yeah. Bezos, not to make this too pro Amazon, even right. though really like a former and current Amazon employee and but like, you know, Bezos says something where it's like, okay, but 
the most, you know, sometimes where it's like, okay, the thing you can't get back for any amount of money is like customer trust. Right. So it's like, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the, the business, but it's like, but some companies don't understand that and they, yeah. they kind of skate on it and then eventually oh, yeah. they go under yeah. because once they're not trusted by customers, everything else is sort of, is, is everything else is just waiting for destruction because yeah. so the problem that yeah. comes when you have c- companies who don't care about customers because their customers have to use them. Right. Um, and, or, yeah. or, or that they're, they're, the market is so, uh, small that it's like almost a monopoly right like equifax is a great example yeah. because there's only like two or three and I think. you don't even know um, that you're using them yeah. you know and like in yeah. many cases yeah you're interfacing with them through a business right that is, and, and has a, to deal with them yeah and a lot of companies kind of have to use them um and yeah. and so and 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 this goes to a lot of different industries right uh well, well like quasi industries because they're not even such a free market in the first place right they're, um they're, it's and and some things are not even like, like ISPs, for instance. Yeah, or 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 government institutions, because sure. those because those kind of have customers who are forced to use them. All right, um, like you know, like like you know, police workers, for example. Yeah, or, you you like, can't be like, um, I would like to use a different. I I think these cops suck in this city, and I think that the neighboring city has a great police force. So I would right. like to be. I would like these police to answer when I call them. Right. If I have an issue, you can't do that. Right. So you're. Yeah, and that that's where. You know, that's where in some cases things like, I mean, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's why cover ups happen. Yeah. It's, it, but, it's, because they don't need to worry about the long term customer impact of the leak. But, but that's the beauty of something like checks and, you know, I mean, that this right. in a healthy system of checks and balances. And I think healthy companies also have checks and balances. Mm-hmm. You know, like OPSEC is incentivized to always say no. Mm-hmm. Right. But then other people eventually obsess and they go, okay, there is a way to make this safe. Right. It's a real pain in the ass. And do you really, really want this? How important is this? And you right. say, it's really important. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, we'll do it. And that's just like a very simple example of like, right. And I mean, I think also in government, the whole idea is that like you have elected officials, you have unelected bureaucracies, you have different branches of government and they're all sort of supposed to be in tension with each other. So that, say, for instance, right. a prosecutor should not have incentives to cover police misconduct. Right. A judge should not have incentives to cover prosecutorial misconduct. You know, an elected official should not have incentives. You know, it's like right. this, yeah. this circle. So yeah, so that the of, equilibrium is is uh, yeah. is more uh, I mean, and, morally and, or ethically And it's almost, it's, almost um, uh, it's, not a, it's not a market in the sense of like a, you know, like a capitalist economic market. It's but, it's, uh-huh. but it's like... Um, it's a system of, of conflicting interests. Yes. So it's, it's sort of a, a marketplace of different organizational goals and different forms of oversight. Yeah, it's just competition. Yeah, it, which is another form of, of competition that I think can work well or can work badly. Like, I mean, I think both within a corporation and within a government, within a society, like you're you know, internally a corporation that, that there's no corporation that's purely beholden to market forces. You know, it's when, like when you. And there are, I mean, like there are there are companies that are uh, like small companies that are entirely based on customer trust. Oh, sure, right? no, um, I, I mean, I mean more like their internal structure. Imagine, say, uh, you're working a tech company, and you say, "Hey, can you show me how to set up the the Docker container?" And they go, "Well, how much will you pay me for it?" Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you don't have to bid on because that would be really inefficient if every time you use the bathroom right. there were like multiple traveling toilet vendors. Right. You know, like. 
sometimes what works best is a plan structure and making sure that there are enough different incentives to prevent bad actors from getting far. Right. Um, but yeah, no, but I mean, I guess you're right. In other cases, like if you are a lemonade stand, you are actually in your one person, you're an owner operator. Or like a local bookstore or something like that. Right? Sure. Like, but mm, that's, that, that's going to be another conversation for the time because mm -hmm. there, I think there's something very interesting about services, which their main economic mechanism is not their main value add. Because a local bookstore just doesn't have the same capacity as Amazon. Sure. But Amazon doesn't have the storefront or the community or the people you talk to or the... Right. Or like the quietness. Or the, yeah. Or the, like the discoverability. Yeah. There's no cat that will come and jump in your lap when you're reading. And it's kind of nice to pet a cat and read a book and sit yeah. by the sun. Yeah. But yeah, but that's, but that's, a, that's a different thing where... But you're, and that's something that is hard to capture with the pure... You can't capture that the balance sheet. And you can't even capture the value of it with a city. It's like, what is the value of this local business? And it's like, well, their their economic service can be replaced, but what? But in a weird way, uh, or not in a weird way, a standard way, they contribute to increasing the overall quality of life. So you can say have a really good local used bookstore, mm -hmm. and what it's actually doing is, as a bookstore, it's barely making money or it's losing money, but it's actually contributing to an increase in property values in like. A, half mile radius mm -hmm. because people really like it and they like going there and it right. attracts you know like a yeah, more yeah. like intellectual so yeah it's like a recreational park yeah so businesses can can on paper be and i think it's the same thing in companies right where it's like on paper people go well can we cut can we cut expenses can we what if we what if we outsource this what if we cut expenses okay so what if we cut all money for internal tools you know, we're not going to develop anything internally anymore. What if we cut security? What if we cut infrastructure? What if we fire all the most senior people and replace them with people who superficially are getting the same amount of work done, but actually are, you know, are in some subtle way or some really overt way, you know, there's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the same value. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the problem is sometimes we overemphasize metrics. Mm -hmm. um, because, and the problem is also that we don't know what the right metrics are. Um, that and, and some of them are tough to measure, you know? Like, yeah, some like, of them are intangible. Yes. Like, do you can have someone who writes really good wiki docs, and that's really valuable. And even if you try to say, like, oh, we'll, we'll count the number of edits, the number of lines, and it's like, but someone else may game the system with just sure. a really crappy 30-page document that's right. a total word salad. You sure. know, like so you wouldn't want to try to you wouldn't want to try to objectively measure who's writing better docs. Um, or at least sure. you, you But like even that's just one dimension. Right. And and then it may be like the reason that someone else doesn't have docs is because it's like, oh, well, it's really self-evident, you know, like it works really well out of the box. You know, like so each the problem is each set of metrics proposes its own new its own each each set of metrics has its own challenges for ways in which it can fail to capture information right which is why like and people and misinterpretation yeah yeah like there's you know like um i, I worked on a, a a health dashboard for kbs and there's a big spike in traffic and some and some people in some areas were like oh that's great and then they wanted to know why traffic went down so much. And it's like, well, there was a large scale event. It affected people globally. So everybody went to check, you know, their, the health of their services using this dashboard. And then when it was over, 
no one needed to check anymore because they checked it and said everything's good and they go great right so it's like this is a service where you expect spikes yeah where you expect huge spikes but also um this you wouldn't say that this service is more valuable because it's being used more in fact the uh -huh. more that it's used the worse it is an indicator for the overall health of your company right so it's it's these little these little things but yeah that we that I would love to talk with you another time about like the uses and abuses of metrics in, yeah. in decision-making. Yeah. Um, but no, I've taken enough of your time already. Uh, thank you so much for talking uh, with us. Um, is there anything you want to plug? Do you have any? No, I'm, any uh, thanks a lot for, any, uh, for, for this discussion. Um, I, yeah, I, uh, I talked too much for it to be an interview. Yeah, no, I, no, I think it was, I think it was a good discussion. Um, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't call it an interview. Is, yeah. it, was your intention for it to be an interview? Oh, no, never, not at all. Although I think someone else expected that and they were surprised. <laughs> but, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, I like discussions. Yeah. Um, oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, 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 no okay. plugs. Yeah, Any thanks. open conference talks, open source yeah. libraries? Uh, uh, I'll send you some links to yeah. put on the description, maybe. Sure. Is yeah. your work hiring anything we should know about? Yeah, I, well, I can I can send you links in the description, but sure. uh, uh, yeah, of course, my orgs are hiring. Yeah, you work. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, it's uh, Amazon. But, All the orgs are hiring. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, yeah, this is great. Thanks so much. Yeah.